2: i'm steven metcalf and this is the slate culture gab fest need for speed edition it's wednesday june 1st 2022 on today's show oh man they really did it this time top gun maverick the sequel to the iconic 80s blockbuster do i even need to say it it stars tom cruise but not Kelly McGillis. Anyway, we will discuss. And then, the comedian George Carlin is the subject of a new HBO documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. And, as well, he's become a prop in our ongoing culture wars, what really isn't. We discuss the many strange vicissitudes of Carlin's life and afterlife with Jason Bailey. And finally, the defamation trial featuring Johnny Depp and Amber Heard Maybe it's. It's so many things that just picking through that will take up the bulk of our segment. But among the many things it may be is Me Too, This Apotheosis, or Gravestone. We discuss the most freighted celebrity trial, I think, maybe since OJ. We'll discuss that, too. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Julia, hey. Hello. Well, I should say very quickly, Julia, you'll be dropping out uh, during our Carlin segment, uh, but otherwise joining us for everything else. And of course, Dana Stevens is the uh, film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana.
3: Hey, Steve. How are you doing?
2: Excellent. Okay. Well, loud, brash, towel-snappingly homoerotic. The original Top Gun was, well, it was very many things at once. It cemented the blockbuster as the defining business model of Hollywood going forward. And uh, I th- I'd think i say furthermore, it claimed Reaganism as something far bigger than just politics. If you think you're dead, yes, that is actually a line from the original Top Gun became the defining ethic of the decade. Uh, the movie also made Tom Cruise uh, over from an up-and-coming, really intriguing actor into one of the world's biggest movie stars, maybe one of the biggest of all time. And here we are, nearly 40 years later, and neither Tom Cruise nor American inanity have aged a day. Do I even need to summarize the plot of Top Gun Maverick? You, I'm sure you know it already. Maverick is older but unbowed, which is to say he's no wiser. The brass still hates him, though deep down they love and envy him. There's a weird, vague, forever war mission that in the end only Maverick can lead. There are tons of soundtrack callbacks and archival clips of the original film. Oi, the movie stars Cruise and Jennifer Connelly and Miles Teller as the son of... Of Goose. All right. As is often the case with some of these juggernaut properties, we don't get clips; we just get the trailer. Uh, we'll play some of that. And uh, in it, the first voice you're going to hear is John Hamm, who plays his uh, most skeptical superior. He's, I think, he's great in this film. Let's uh, let's take a listen.
1: Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, A.K.A. Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine.
0: With all due respect, sir,
2: I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations.
3: What the hell? Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking.
1: And we're off.
2: All right, Dana, let me start with you. Imagine my surprise as a student of the 1980s who thought, okay, the first Top Gun is just like a Reaganite concentrate, right? It's just all of the steroidal, you know, brashness and immaturity of the era. Here we are 40 years later, we're doing nothing but paying for that turning point in our history. I hardly even need to enumerate how. Out comes the second movie. It seems to me like a just barely updated carbon copy of the first. And smart people love it. Are you one of them? (laughs)
3: well steve i feel like i i can't really decide how i feel about this movie until we have this conversation you were the first person i wanted to talk to about it after coming out because you know of your your 80s knowledge base and your i knew you would have strong opinions one way or the other there's something so repellent about the world of top gun as i remember it from the 1980s and yet as you can see in my rave review of this new movie it's somehow, even though it remains just as politically offensive as it ever was and just as sort of reliant on this on this very ambivalent figure in our pop culture, this, you know, undying masculine, whatever he is, kind of phallic symbol that is Tom Cruise. I loved the new movie. I thought it was just good popcorn cinema. And I was I was so ready to watch it again the minute I walked out of it. And it just reminded me of, you know, all of the sort of objectionable yet enjoyable um, mm. mall movies of my youth. And something about its um, removal in history from the Reagan era. Although, as I say in my review, it may just be that, you know, Reaganism is so deep in our DNA now that we can't even sense it around us anymore. But something about its removal from that era, and it's—I thought—really moving attempt to update some of the, um, the 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 youthful folly of that first movie really worked for me. Like I cried twice in this movie, and also just on a purely technical and craft level, found the editing of the flight sequences extraordinary and um, the action really, really well crafted. And I understand why it was a smash hit this weekend and got people back into theaters for, you know, basically in the biggest numbers as they have since the pandemic, practically. I don't know. But go ahead. Tear me down. Tell me that I'm reactionary and deluded and I need to have my consciousness raised. No, no, I'm not
2: Dana. Uh, Come on. Come on. I'm not going to do that. I just have three words. Red pill Dana. Uh, (laughs) Julia. Julia. I just need you to bounce off of that and explain to me, is this, is this everyone feel this way about this movie that it's somehow they're carried along by it's, uh, you know, high wire exhilarations or something like, what is it? I don't, I, because personally I'm immune. Apparently.
0: Totally loved it. Re- ready to go out on the yacht with Jennifer Connelly and, uh, <laughs> duff around while she teaches me how to use a lanyard. Um, I think there's a couple ways to think about this movie and two of them frame the movie as a charming raffish underdog, which has always been the like benefit and problem with America. Like our self-conception as the scrappy independence who threw off that mean old King and we're kind of retaining that idea through, you know, centuries of dominance and brutality. Um, so, one way in which this film is an underdog and presents itself as an underdog is if you read any of the great features, and there were some interesting ones in the New York Times and The Ringer about how they actually pulled off this movie, this whole movie is like an Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible stunt mm. in modern Hollywood. Like they, they, this crew of young actors who I found to be sort of charming and amusing and somehow the presence of one female pilot as though it was Paw Patrol <laughs> totally satisfied me. And I was like, well, Phoenix is there, so it's not sexist anymore. Um, anyway, <laughs> like these, what these actors all signed up to do was like actually be sent on increasingly daredevil and insane flights at the behest of Tom Cruise, who in addition to being one of our foremost movie stars has become Kind of like a stunt guru in God, and you know, famously loves to do as much as he can of the practical stunts in the various movies that he's in. So, just making a movie like this almost entirely with practical effects itself is an underdog high wire act, and it and you feel it, I think, in the result. It doesn't look like a big, muddy, gray cloud of bullshit. <laughs> it's beautiful in many, many respects. I mean, I love flying, as long-time listeners of the show know, flight is beautiful. Flight is the ultimate human underdog achievement, right? And it just glories in in the need for speed in a way that's like actually aesthetically lovely. So that's underdog number one. Underdog number two is that this movie... Reminded me that Tom Cruise is a great actor like I've I've been so used to Tom Cruise the bionic stunt machine who kind of steers clear of human roles because when he tries to be human it reminds us what a weird actual underlying human Tom Cruise is with the Scientology and the wives and the Katie Holmes and the whatever the hell Um, so I think most of the movies I feel I've seen him in in the last 10 years have just been like him running with his like chop 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 running style and saving the world and in this movie, he gets to like slow down and like look wistful at his dead friend's son and romance a slender bartender in preppy clothes and like hop out the window like it's risky business and have, as Dana noted, a twinkle in his eye. And uh, totally hook, line and sinker. Hook, line and sinker. Give us the alternate, Steve. I mean, uh, let me say,
2: first of all, what I liked about the movie. I liked that aerial stunts were amazing. I agree that it looks astonishing and the sheer amount of ingenuity and daring do that went into making those sequences um you know has to be marveled at i totally agree with that the second thing is it's no accident that christopher macquarie is one of the big credits creative credits on this film you know he brings enormous amounts of intelligence and craft to so far as i can tell everything he touches as soon as he got involved in the mission impossible series it became very tight and um, actually taught and and engaging in a way that I don't think it had been previously. Um, uh, I can't even begin to tell you what I didn't like about the movie. So much of it I just find completely preposterous. But I, I, I think it's more interesting to say why. In some sense, um, you know, as a person whose sensibility was formed watching the great great movies of the 1970s in the theater, you know, I felt betrayed by this movie. It's very. It's an anti. It, it is definitely an anti-director project. It was a validly that by its producers, Bruckheimer and Simpson. They wanted someone they could boss around whose aesthetic was that of a, of a TV, a, a commercial maker, which is what they got in uh, Scott who directed the original. It's essentially an advertisement, not only for Cruz, the movie star and American jingoism, but for American male immaturity. Right. And it's, it, it, like almost as a moral almost as a morality, like arguing for its um superiority to an adult view of the world. Like I just thought it was a dangerous like literally a dangerous movie. But I also just find Dana, I, I' sorry, I just I need you to defend it a little more because I find movies without much by way of plot, character development, or humor very hard to connect with,
3: I mean, I don't think you could. You could certainly fault this movie on being short of plot. I don't think it's short of either character development or humor. That was somewhat what surprised me about it. And in fact, everything you were saying about the original Top Gun, I more or less agreed with at the time. Uh, at, granted, at the time, I mean, I was a, a, an utter snob who didn't want to have any pleasure at the movies. <laughs> so I think I was immune to whatever pleasure that it offered at the time, and was not expecting anything from this new one. In fact, it seemed to me like, why do we need a legacy sequel for this utterly dated? Reagan-era movie that doesn't speak to us anymore and, and to the extent it does, you know, speaks to all the wrong parts of America. And I thought this movie within the, you know, within the limit, limitations of the popcorn blockbuster genre did address those things and that it was about Uh, obsolescence in a way, you know, that it is a movie that again and again stresses this theme that Maverick never grew up. You know, Maverick is Mm -hmm. a failure within the Navy. He was never promoted past the rank of captain. He's never been able to keep a marriage or, or relationship going. I don't think that the movie lionizes those things oh
2: my god you're crazy that's the quiddity by which maverick is the only man who can carry out this impossible mission it's he's preserved this moral more ultimately more morally superior core of immaturity against the grown-up world which hews to arbitrary rules and roles and i I don't know i can't be rational about this movie
0: oh i'm i'm with steve on that i think I think every single, like, setting him up as the child idiot um, is, like, self-defense against critics like us, <laughs> to the degree <laughs> this movie even cares about critics like us, because Brilliant. it's an absolute lionization of, like, no, we need the guy who's just going to grin on the motorcycle while he rides in from the Mojave Desert to his next assignment, and we need the guy who's, um, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I think the movie is, when you look at its politics, um an apologia for a, 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 and a and a canny, but ultimately sentimental one for a type of man, American manhood that was formerly lionized in an uncomplicated fashion. And that is now, um, been complicated in the way the culture understands it. And this movie would like to blow all of that away in a bunch of jet fumes. Mm. Um, and you know um, for a minute i was happy to stand on a windy aircraft carrier deck and pretend the pretend they were gone as well so but i don't like myself for it <laughs> <laughs>
2: Listen, I want to be clear. I really admire the Bravura action sequences. And the climax of the movie is the classic 20 to 25 minute one where I typically look at my watch and I'm like, this is going to be a slog. In part because you're right, Julia, like the geography of action sequences very often is so the fundamental question of who's where and where are they going and where are they in relation to everything else that's happening they're chaotically busy to the point where you lose yourself and your spatial orientation completely that did not happen in this movie the same way macquarie's touches on the screenplay because he's very good about setting up an improbable task and then having micro tasks along the way that help you fulfill the larger task and then bringing it to this, you know, orgasmic climax. Um, He's brilliant at that. The same way apparently Joseph Kaczynski is brilliant, the director is brilliant at orienting you, the camera, the machinery, the star, and the plot in relation to one another. I totally agree. And I think that that's ultimately why people are so high on this film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think Kaczynski does an amazing job directing this and just the clarity of, like, what is the thing they're trying to do? How are they practicing yes. for it? When yes. they're practicing fails, what is at stake? And can, how can they actually pull it off? Like, there was a way in which the whole movie reminded me of the, like, essential physics of flight. Like, the movie felt like a return mm. to, like, the ultimate practical effect of, like, getting an... Earthbound thing to achieve liftoff. It's like, well, if you do this set of things in the right order with military precision and a set of like, you know, ground checks along the way to make sure all the parts are lined up correctly, then the thing can fly. And so many of the blockbusters we see now just like fail to do that. And there's like a weird cloud of computer goo towards the end, and you're looking at your watch. (laughs) And this movie. You know, it it like achieves liftoff with, you know, the, the old fashioned basic, you know, planar physics. And uh, there's just something satisfying about that.
2: All right. Well, the movie is Top Gun Maverick. Uh, it's in theaters everywhere. It's uh, bigger than my opinion of it. That's for sure. Go check it out and shoot us an angry email. Oh, and also, by the way, a quick reminder, Julia, you'll be sitting out for the next segment, but coming back after that. All right, let's uh, let's move on. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business on this show. Dana, what, uh, what do we have?
3: Stephen, our only item of business this week is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment, which will be about Ray Liotta, who sadly passed away last week at the age of 67. Uh, Very unexpected, and he was still in the midst of making several projects, one of which will have to remain unfinished. We'll just revisit his career, and I think each of us are going to talk about some of our favorite titles, the first thing that came to mind when we thought about and mourned Ray Liotta. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can stay tuned for that conversation after our show. And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, which exists on lots of other shows as well. And of course, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on slate.com. These memberships matter a lot to slate. So please support us by signing up at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show.
2: All right. Well, there's a new uh, two-part documentary on HBO about the great comedian George Carlin. It's called George Carlin's American Dream. Carlin, of course, was the great and subversive comedian who came into his own in the crossfade of two decades, the 1950s and the 1960s. And you could really argue that's the origins of our contemporary and sort of forever culture war. Right there. I mean, we divide it into, like, the Nixon voters, the non-Nixon voters, the protesters, the counter-protesters, the hipsters in the squares, Well, Carlin was writing all of those lines in a very curious and idiosyncratic way. He was significantly older than the protesters and the hippies, but he was also a deeply subversive sensibility caught within an establishment media, which was just paying his way. I mean, he was making a very good living churning out corny variety show bits Um, and being a spokesperson for various products, but he was chafing badly. Something about the essence of him as a a creative artist really chafed badly against that. Um, As someone close to Carlin in the documentary says, at that point in his career, it was, well, which George is going to win, the caustic truth-teller on the side of salutary anarchy or the straight, trying to make it in a still very straight and establishment medium, Okay, in the very opposite clip we're about to hear, you'll hear Pat Oswalt, the comedian and writer, um, talking about just this conflict uh, within Carlin.
1: You watched the arc of a creative person that just stayed with it till they broke through to that next evolution that he went through. Because it felt like, yes, I'm a, you know me as this goofy guy that is a wonderful wordsmith and I can always find ways to say things and I'm now, I have been pushed to the point by what I have seen in my years where none of that is there anymore and I need to tell you exactly what is going on. We can't get rid of this war mentality from our public life. We got a war on poverty, war on crime, war on cancer, war on litter, war on drugs. Did you ever notice we don't have a war on homelessness? No war on homelessness. You know why? You know why? I'll tell you why, because there's no money in it. There's no money in that problem. Nobody stands to get rich off of that problem. You find a solution to homelessness where the businessmen and the politicians can steal a couple of million dollars each, you'll see the streets of America begin to clear up pretty fast.
2: Mm. <laughs> Preach, right? Uh, okay, we're joined by Jason Bailey, the film critic and the author of Fun City Cinema in New York and the movies that made it. I'm so psyched to read it um, very soon. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It seems to me, reading your wonderful piece in Slate about this, that there's, uh, um, you know, your point really is that there's more than one way to look at Carlin as a political conscience of the time. So he's going through a renaissance because of social media and clips of his being shared because of their, like, searing relevance to things that are happening today, but they're being shared by both the left and right. He's more obviously a figure of the left in some sense, but if you were to look at the whole picture, for example, some people might want to cancel him. He's actually way more complex and ambivalent a figure than really almost anybody, even this wonderful in-depth documentary now on HBO is giving him credit for. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, I think it's really significant that, you know, when you look at the history as it's laid out in the documentary, that Carlin really sort of became overtly uh, political and sort of had this this metamorphosis into this scathing social commentator towards the end of the Reagan era, um, and really sort of confirming this idea that so many of the battle lines were drawn that were still on either side of during the Reagan years. You know that 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 was really the point at which these issues were hashed out, where the 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 sides were chosen, and where these these routines and these this commentary that he had remained. So easy to excerpt and put on Twitter or on Instagram or on your social media of choice, because the specifics may have changed, but the, the, the broad ideological issues remain the same. And so mm-hmm. it's very easy to say, see, it's still, it still matters. It's still relevant. It's also, you know, a vast simplification of him as a person and of his point of view, which is part of what I get into in this piece. This idea that, you know, he was a messy person. He was complicated. His ideas were not an easy division between you know, contemporary notions of left and right. Um, but I think that's also what makes him interesting as an artist. And the, So, I really feel like the only sort of disservice that we're doing by continuing to sort of sample him and meme him the way we are, is to presume that he would still feel exactly the same way on every single one of these issues. When, as we see in the documentary, his views and his persona changed constantly throughout his life and throughout his career.
2: This, you know, uh, Judd Appetow produced documentary that runs to about four total hours on HBO is divided into two parts. The first is what my intro sort of emphasized, which is, you know, the original original culture where you could argue in the nineteen sixties between hips and squares or whatever. But as you say, quite rightly, especially in the second episode, you know, Carlin re-found himself. Like he he was kind of lost as an establishment straight, trying to fit in on variety show TV, and then found himself as a kind of hippie coffee house. Uh, circuit, uh, you know, um, guy. But then there was a second moment of getting lost where Carlin became old news towards the end of the 70s. He was doing really tired material as SNL and various other things became hip. He was now the fuddy-duddy, and he re-found himself in in the Reagan 80s because he understood something deeper about the ethos of the time, which didn't break down along hip and square anymore precisely. It was much more about... It was larger and deeper. It was so much more thoughtful. It was about how capitalism is distorting all of us in some way, and he wanted to run counter to that. And that doesn't—it not only doesn't graft on hip square, it doesn't really graft on left-right. So to appropriate him now, in some sense, is almost inevitably to misappropriate him.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, and I think he saw that, you know, some of the most timeless material he was doing in this era was about how often— these issues, they can be important, but they can also be used as distractions. And th- really that so much of what the American dream that he's talking about and that's referenced in the title was, was about division among anyone below you know the top one percent and the you know which again was an idea that was kind of ahead of its time before we were talking about the one percent but this idea that you know it's a club and you ain't in it was one Mm. of his his key quotes and one of the ones that that we hear again in the documentary it's a big club and you ain't in it you and i are not in the big club By the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long, When they tell you what to believe all day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. This idea that there is a ruling class, That many of us are sort of under the clutches of and that a lot of the big ideas of the time, whether they be culture ideas, whether they be militarism, whether they be capitalism, sort of all fall under that rubric. And that kind of became a guiding principle and a worldview for him.
3: Jason, something that struck me watching this this four hour documentary about Carlin, which uncovered so many parts of his career, especially the early parts that we really don't think much about, is that there is a through line in spite of his ability to metamorphose and reinvent himself. And the doc really shows how he did that multiple times during his career. But there's a really, really solid through line of him as a a prophetic, truth-telling figure. And that's, I think, what made him radical, you know, when he first made that political turn. I mean, really, even in the 60s, right? I mean, even talking about Muhammad Ali refusing the draft, there's an incredible riff that he has that's in the documentary about that, about how... Muhammad Ali doesn't want to go and kill people. He wants to stay and beat people up. And there's this incredible right. line of, of Carlin saying he does draw the line somewhere. <laughs> right. uh, I'll beat him up and I don't want to kill him.
1: <laughs> and the government told him, well, if you won't kill them, we won't let you beat him up.
3: <laughs> it's an incredible kind of expose, right? Of just of, of yeah. the um, absurdity of the, the the draft at that moment in the Vietnam War. Um and although what free speech meant in each phase of his career and in each phase of American history he was living through kept on changing and obviously now has taken a different and somewhat sinister turn, right, people talking about mm-hmm. absolute freedom of speech, that always seemed to be something he was for. And that makes you understand why he can be appropriated by you know libertarians and right and left and all these different figures now. And I wonder if you could talk about that radicality that he maintained, and specifically in relationship to the many comedians uh, we heard—one, Patton Oswalt—the the talking head comedian interviews throughout this documentary that just show the incredible veneration that other younger comedians held him in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there was, you know, the the thing that continues to attract comedians to him and to, to keep sort of holding him so high among the sort of Hall of Fame is this, I think, the same thing that, uh, that makes contemporary comedians continue to hold Richard Pryor to that same sort of uh, perch. Um, and Richard Pryor, who, who also went through very similar sort of crisis of conscious and of persona and changed all throughout his career as well, which is this, this idea that he was always guided by a search for a true comic voice— and to speak from a, a, from a position of honesty on stage, and that took on a lot of different voices throughout his career, and you can see that in the way that he sort of struggled to find that true comic voice, but you can also see it in the way that that he was caught into throughout his career, and now especially by contemporary comedians. The thing that I think is interesting about him as a as a free speech warrior is that. On one hand, you will see, you know, sort of one division of uh, contemporary commentators and comedians hold him up as a free speech absolutist. And you can find, you know, quotes that seem to hold to that view. Feminists want to control your language. Feminists want to tell you how to talk. And they're not alone. They're not alone. I'm not picking on the feminists. they got a lot of company in this country. There's a lot of groups, a lot of institutions in this country want to control your language. Tell you what you can say and what you can't say. But you can also find interviews in, you know, there was a a well-circulated clip a while back where he was talking about Andrew Dice Clay, but he's talking about the idea that Yes, you can talk about anything as a comedian, but to really be what a comedian is and should be, the idea of punching down sort of flies in the face of what a real comedian and cultural commentator does. thing that I, that I find unusual, and it's, you know, it's not a criticism so much, but his targets are underdogs. And comedy traditionally has picked on people in power, people who abuse their power. Uh, women and gays and immigrants are kind of, to my way of thinking, underdogs. So. None of these things are easy, you know. None of these things are, are are sort of simple to break into boxes, and that I think is also sort of what makes him continue to be fascinating to us. Is that you can grab onto different parts of his persona, you can grab onto different ideas that he held at different points, uh, and sort of cling to those.
2: Jason, listening to you, that's brilliant. It occurs to me that there's a a comparison here, we don't have to explore it, but just briefly with Orwell, which is just claimed by absolutely everybody because everybody is in the end a narcissist who believes that they stand against hypocrisy and can't. And of course, (laughs) that's not the way, that's the way human personality works, but it's not the way reality works, right? I mean, it's, it's just too easy to embrace the subversive figure in a sense, does it I, – I admire Carlin almost to no end, but it sometimes worries me, and I, I wonder if it does you too, that, you know, in standing so against those things, it was very hard to know precisely what he
1: stood for. But maybe that's just not the job of a comedian. Well, it, you know, it's tricky because, like – and this is delved into, I think, in a in a really smart way in the documentary towards the end, because he continued to evolve throughout the career, and towards the end, he was veering into a persona of of almost straight up nihilism that uh, put some people off, you know. And and there is some conversation in the documentary was how much of that was real, how much of that was the co- sort of continuing evolution of a persona. Which I think is a a good question because it does leave you saying, okay, well, if there is no hope, then why are we here? Mm -hmm. But I, but there's also a a pretty compelling point made that, you know, that there, that in some ways that sort of nihilism was almost a defense mechanism, that that was him sort of a lifetime of being hopeful and being burned uh, and sort of how it manifested itself Um, I think the thing that's important to bear in mind, though, anytime we're doing these sort of comparisons and talking about contemporary figures and their sort of uh, predecessors, is to keep in mind that... With Carlin, with Pryor, with Lenny Bruce, with even Sam Kennison, it was never solely about pushing buttons. It was never solely about shock value. They were never using these words, phrases, ideas solely to get a rise out of people. And I think that's what too many of the quote unquote anti-woke comedians and commentators now are doing and, and, and failing to understand is that... It's not enough to just push buttons. It's not enough to just say the thing you're not supposed to say. You actually have to have something to say in addition to that.
3: Jason, I'm glad that you brought up this this late career turn toward nihilism because I think that was the most fascinating part of the documentary to me, especially in light of everything that had come before and you right. know how much you had seen him as really kind of a tortured artist, you know, somebody who periodically throughout his life went through these painful moltings, you know, where he kind of had to get closer and closer to the core of what he was thinking. And again and again, he describes he's really, really great at describing his own craft in interviews. And yeah. again and again, he describes this thing of, you know, wanting to... Um, um, to become more himself, you know, to to expose his thinking. And there's a great thing he says about, no, I don't want to make the audience think. Nothing could be deadlier than trying to make an audience think. I want them to witness me thinking, you know? Yes. Um, and, and in relation to that late career turn toward what seems like nihilism on the surface, it seems like... There's, there's, a, there's a truth to that, too, right? There's a sense in which that final molting that he underwent, you know, was him exposing something, something so dark that it made the audience sort of have to take the next step. And Apato says that in a, in a Q&A about the, the series that's really fascinating, where his reading of this very, very dark material that Carlin was doing toward the end of his life was not that he had given up hope, but that he was passing the torch in a way.
2: Yeah. Well, Jason Bailey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Please, please come back soon.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, and the documentary, by the way, once again, uh, it's a two-parter on HBO. It's called George Carlin's American Dream.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Grainger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
2: All right, well, it's hard to know exactly where to begin with the subject. It's both so huge and so messy. But the defamation trial uh, featuring Johnny Depp and Amber Heard is shaping up as uh, many things at once. The most epic, he said. She said uh, it's brought social media and TikTok into play in full force. There are super fans, probably what are bots, uh, paid armies of uh, PR, flack, men's rights activists all mobilized in one cause or another. Uh, people are wondering, I think quite rightly, is this going to represent the apotheosis or pa- perhaps the end of Me Too? This is among the most massively overdetermined determined things that we probably ever talked about on this show. So maybe it's best to start with something simple but true, a discrepancy between the substance of the legal question at hand, whether 12 words that Amber Heard published in an editorial are actually legally defamatory, and all the various Michigas now surrounding the trial, i.e. the culture war that breaks out around virtually anything in America right now, down to whether the sky is blue. So uh, I think it's worth just reading those sentences that she published in the Washington Post in December 2018. Then two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse. On and on and on and on. You don't even need the full sentence because that is the essence of this trial. And yet, Julia, you know, you're you're an arts and entertainment editor at a prominent U.S. publication in Los Angeles. That is not really in some sense, or it has not become the essence of this. You must be both editing, assigning pieces, and kind of dodging bullets and landing planes about this story. It's pretty big, right?
0: Yeah, and it's a little confusing how big it is, and it's been a little bit surprising how big it is, I think, to some of us, and I'll count myself in that number. And there is a way in which it seems like These two public figures, two actors, um, have been arguing about these charges and claims in some public forum or other for a number of years now, including in a a defamation case in Britain that Johnny Depp lost, Um, which is why it surprised me at least that this particular trial has become a source of incredible fascination for lots of people. Uh, And I think there's a set of people for whom it was not a source of fascination who were then surprised by the number of people for whom it is a source of fascination. And that's one of the dynamics that is at play. A couple of factors result in that. First of all, the American judge did not dismiss the case and allowed it to proceed. Also, she allowed the proceedings to be televised. Um, And we should probably note here that, that a verdict is expected quite soon, possibly could happen in between the time we record this segment and you're listening to it, but there has not yet been one as we record. Um and you know, so every l- jot and tittle of the back and forth of this series of incredibly bleak allegations by Heard against Depp and um, you know, a set of counter-allegations of Depp against Heard, um, has been scrutinized by anybody who wants to watch. And the question is, who wants to watch? And it turns out that, yes, various kind of court TV type establishments, some of which seem to be streaming online or following every back and forth. Yes, we at the Los Angeles Times have been posting regularly about what's going on at the trial. There is substantial interest in it. But there also seems to be um, significant interest on video web platforms and to sort of turning the video that is produced around the trial into content of different kinds, whether it's legal analysis, or Johnny Depp fan accounts, or, um, you know, Amber Heard hate accounts, or uh, anything else. And to the point where, you know, we occasionally let our kids watch YouTube. um, But my husband has been like saying no to all their YouTube requests for the, you know, the three specific accounts we let them watch, because every time he was looking over their shoulder, there were just weird macabre suggested videos assessing this trial in what seemed like a misogynistic fashion in the corner. Um, and Amanda Hess wrote a piece for the New York Times about it suggesting that the, dy- the media dynamics around the trial reminded her of Gamergate, which I think is apt and troubling in that there is a substantial online interest with a strong misogynistic bent in a topic that a lot of the mainstream press and media kind of can't figure out how to get a handle on. And there's an instinct to look away. And that instinct is perhaps a dangerous one because the dynamics at play here, um, of kind of extreme, uh, hostility toward this accuser, uh, in really grotesque fashion are dynamics that could come back around in any in any old case, are troubling here and might be troubling in many respects in the future. So, that's my brief summary. Not so brief summary. How'd I do?
3: <laughs> that was you. You really broke that down well, and and brought up some things that that I think are important to take into account. For example, the fact that debt. Depp- chose this, right? I mean, he's the plaintiff. He's the person who brought the suit. And so he knew there was going to be discovery. He knew that there would be all kinds of material that would potentially make him look terrible. But, you know, he also knew that he has an impunity as a celebrity and as, you know, the male partner in the relationship and the more Professionally powerful partner in the relationship, and I guess was willing to take the reputational hit in exchange for humiliating Amber Heard, which I is. I mean, I think he has basically said in, in texts that have been read out loud in the trial that you know that the point of this was to was to cause her in his words global humiliation. The maybe most shocking detail of this trial to me is that it is being televised and live streamed on YouTube. I just can't believe that the judge, who is a woman, the whose name is Penny Ascarate. Presumably, she's you know aware of the. That social media can capitalize on trials of, you know, huge celebrities that are being live streamed. And that the, of course, they're going to be turned into meme material and and, you know, yellow journalism. And of course, they're going to have a chilling effect down the line on domestic violence survivors and their willingness to report, right? I mean, that we're basically seeing a woman be put in the stockades. And whoever you believe in their case, and it does seem like, you know, there is certainly bad behavior and some, you know, obfuscation and lying on both sides. And this particular case is is not a domestic violence case, but a defamation case, of course. Nonetheless, it just seems like this decision to make this a live streamable, you know, court TV spectacle was a terrible, terrible decision on the judge's part. And that Yes, we should not be looking away now that these terrible, ugly things are happening in the press, but many of these terrible, ugly things would not be happening if these people were given some privacy to have a trial about their own private affairs.
2: Mm. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, here's where, (laughs) treading carefully, here's where I'd begin. I think once a person becomes like a real, breathing, complex human being becomes a representative in a side of a pre-existing conflict or much less war they suddenly need by their new admirers to be purged of all complexity in order to fulfill their newly symbolic function and this is as true of Amber Heard as it is for Ukraine. I mean, not to equate them, but there is just no such thing as the perfect victim. Like, Ukraine did not bear the burden of being a perfectly Nazi free society, which is a standard we in the United States can't even come close to hewing to in order to defend itself against the Russian invasion. And similarly, Amber Heard bears no responsibility to be the perfect victim in this instance. And like Ukraine, I think one can simply ask in the absence of knowing all the facts, which none of us can or ever will, does one of these narratives appear on its face to be completely absurd? And I just find, personally, Johnny Depp's storytelling surrounding this absurd, and whether hers is somehow conflicted or maybe the truth gets nipped and tucked here and there, or has been in the past, at least, I would be crestfallen in ways that I could barely describe if she lost this case. Now, onto the larger question of we can't adjudicate that or the he said, she said, um, you know, uh, definitively on this show, but we can talk, just as you say, Julia, about the disgorging of this dark web misogyny into the light, which women journalists have been pounding the table and shouting from the rooftops since well before Trump, when the 4chan stories started breaking and the degree of persecution and online harassment was off the charts and that was that was that was it that was as much as racism and and xenophobia and nativism are central to maga misogyny you could argue is as close to the heart of it, if not the very beating heart of it, as it is, by the way, for the Russian project or the Putinist project, which is to restore a fully masculinist society right against the LGBTQ community and women. So to my mind, I think at least for many provisional purposes, you can create a kind of you know, epistemological gap between, quote unquote, what really happened, and we just place our hope in the jury system that the right verdict is reached here. And I think a deep feeling that we need a cultural reckoning about that level of of hatred of women that's not dependent on anybody being pure that's a crazy standard and to decry maga or or putinism doesn't require finding a pure victim a morally pure victim i mean that's a just a crazy conflation of moral aims that uh, serves serves only the interests of the aggressor.
0: And it's been one of the real advances of me, too. I mean, one of the things that was most remarkable about Ronan Farrow's story about Harvey Weinstein is that it included Asia Argento's tale, and she is an incredibly complicated woman, a, a, a woman who might be described as messy, which is another word that's been applied to this trial, Um, And her story is a messy one compared to the kind of cut and dry type of victim who was typically the sort that allowed a a story about male misbehavior to be considered publishable. Um, And so, you know, there's sort of like an increasing respect for the messiness of human interaction and how that can't let powerful men off the hook. Um, And then there's just this incredible backlash to it that's really hard to appreciate if you don't spend all your time in the digital swamps. I mean, I'm reminded of our conversations with Charlie Warzel about the the kind of stop the steal type internet swamps. But, you know, I I was not watching lots of TikToks and YouTube's about this trial prior to preparing for this segment. Then I went and watched a bunch of them and lo and behold, yes, the comments are incredibly disgusting. <laughs> like it's just all these people being like, "Can you know, wait for I mean, they're largely pro-dep, they're vicious about herd, they seem quite sexist and vile. You know, the question has been raised about whether there are pro-dep bots or whether it's a concatenation of pro-dep bots and real online misogynists with nothing to do. But um, it's just so vicious and awful.
3: Yeah, I think it's the ripple effect that, that troubles me the most about this. I mean, to tell you the truth, I, I was pretty much assiduously looking away from it. It just seemed like something we weren't supposed to see, you know, when this went so viral over the past week or so. And you're right, Julie, it was everywhere on YouTube. Even my daughter, who has no opinion about the whole thing and barely knows who either person is, sort of knew that, you know, you had to take a side in the Depp-Herd trial because that is just being, you know, fed into every single platform that she ever visits. And so, yeah, I was looking away from it. And- And I think aside from, you know, just the awful portrait that we get of this particular marriage and, you know, the misery that this is going to inflict on the life of Amber Heard probably for the rest of her career. Right. Um, There's there's just the, the ripple effect it's going to have on the Me Too movement on, you know, anything that involves listening to women or trying to pick apart. He said she said stories. And as I said, for domestic violence, abuse reporting in the future. So boo all around and boo to the judge for televising it.
2: All right, well, let's let that, uh, let's let that be the, the last word for now. Um, all right, moving on.
3: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art, Two FD journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.
2: All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
3: Steve, I have an endorsement that I think will be right up your alley. You were actually just speaking about this kind of movie recently about the, um, the wonderful sort of light French relationship movie where everyone has perfect sweaters and is drinking (laughs) wine out of pleasing glasses and having deep conversations and romantic arguments, right? That genre. So there is a new movie in that genre that is actually connected with a filmmaker we just talked about on a recent show, Céline Siama. She didn't direct it, but she was one of the co-writers of this new French film called uh, Paris 13th District, or 13th arrondissement in French. Have either of you heard of or seen uh, this movie on, on streaming? It's around in a few places no so oh. it's a jacques Audiard movie who is sort of a specialist in in that genre of this kind of crisscrossing um you know french farce romance it's somewhere somewhere in between i guess comedy and drama and it's just a sort of beautifully written and sweet example of that genre one of the actors in it um actually is was one of the two women from port of a lady on fire Noémie merlin who played the the painter in that movie it's I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to make arguments for it as, you know, the the greatest film of the year. I doubt, doubt it would end up on a 10 best list for 2022 unless I really don't see eight or nine more great movies this year, but it really scratches that itch. Not unlike the itch, Steve, of that um, French spy show that you loved. I mean, this is not a, a crime drama in that way, but it has that kind of quintessential Parisian-ness. It's even right there in the title. And uh, it just it just plonks you right down in the in the arrondissement with the cafes and the fights and the sweaters. And uh, it's 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 quite sweet. So if you want some watching that is not going to tear you limb from limb, <laughs> um, and it's going to just kind of give you a nice uh, romantic movie, Night, then uh, I would recommend Paris 13th district. Mm. Uh,
2: very cool. I'm going to watch that uh, forthwith. Uh, Julia, what do you have?
3: I would like to endorse
0: a bird watching app. Uh, I believe this app has actually already been endorsed by our pal David Plotz on the Political Gab Fest. And I have not endorsed it yet because I was a skeptic. So the app is Merlin, it's a bird identifying app. And It has for a long time existed and allowed you to describe like how big is the bird? What colors was it? What was its activity? Was it in a bush or soaring or on the ground? And then it will give you some suggestions as to what that bird is. I don't think that function is very useful, but they have introduced a new-ish function within the last year or two that allows you to essentially shazam bird sounds, bird song. Like you can hold it up, make a recording, it will listen to what's going on near you and then tell you what birds they are. And the first couple of times I tried it, it seemed like maybe not 100% accurate and I just wasn't that sure about it. But I was um, uh, hiking in a couple places with my husband this weekend and was able to use it to helped me identify birds I wasn't sure about, which was a new use and it's so good. I mean it's I mean it just is what I described. It's Shazam for bird song. You can like see a bird you've never seen before sitting on a little branch singing into the sky and plonk it into the app and it'll tell you that it's a Rufus Crown sparrow. And voila, there, you've seen one. There it is. You can watch it more, you can study it more, you can learn more about it. It helped me determine a bullocks from a hooded Oriole this weekend. Uh, so anyway the app is Merlin. Uh, the particular functionality is the the sound ID function. Uh, check it out.
3: That's a great idea for an app that really needed to exist. So they, they hit a, a sweet spot.
0: Well, and I, I, I'm like not a bird song birder. Like there are some people who not only are really good at identifying songs, um, they'll sometimes like count it as having seen a bird if they've just heard a bird, which to me is weird, like having been in the general vicinity of a bird doesn't seem like the same thing as seeing it to me, but everyone makes their own little rules and laws. Um, but it is teaching me a lot. Like now, like the other thing I'm finding is like, okay, now I know what the spotted towhee sounds like. And so I, I am able to kind of suss that out or the difference between these particular parakeets that there are and an acorn woodpecker, like it might turn me into a sonic birder, which is not the type of birder I have been. We'll see. I'll report back.
2: Mm. All right. So uh, um, uh, occasionally I endorse something I've just started to read or am going to read. And as contradictory as that sounds, um, it's it's very sincere. And I follow up and I never find that I regret the proleptic endorsement. And so I think I'm going to do it again. There's a Guardian, very short Guardian review, book review that verges on being an essay. It's just too short to really turn into a full essay, which is too bad. It's beautifully written. The occasion for the review is that um, The Notebooks of Wittgenstein have finally been published in uh, in English, and um, they're fascinating. And this book reviewer, who I'd never heard of, Anil Gomes, and we'll link to the review, just gets at it so quickly and so beautifully about what's fascinating. You basically had this young, tortured philosopher who understands himself to be gay and of course it must be it's you know the austro-hungarian empire it's in the 19-teens um you know he must be deep he has to be perforce deeply closeted um he's tormented he's trying to create a philosophical language that's been purified of human arbitrariness and subjectivity a pure logic as it relates to how we actually use language and order our world his first great book the Tractatus is about that but but like a lot of great books it's actually a monument to its own failure that where he ended up was so much more interesting than his original plan because he was honest about his inability to fulfill it well as he's writing that he and i just to read this to give you some sense of what he was doing um the right hand side of his notebook ledgers was set um, up to set out his evolving thoughts on logic and language the left-hand side was saved for his personal notes written in a simple code in which the letters of the alphabet were reversed, so Z equals A, and so on. And so on the right, he's searching for this entirely quasi-empirical or at least non-arbitrary language you know, by which you can apprehend the world perfectly, but purged of human subjectivity and therefore human sexuality— and in this code on the left side, he's confessing to his sexual desires, his proclivity to masturbate instead of write, <laughs> his depression, and his ambivalence about life. And of course, the arc of Wittgenstein's remarkable career is bringing these two things slowly together and understanding that a human being and the use of language together negate any possibility of an entirely positive, positivist, or empirical apprehension of the world, that we exist in it. As language using subjectivities, and that language is a tool for adaptive use and not a pure a description of reality in itself. The, the personal drama of Wittgenstein coming to that understanding, he published only two books in his life. He published the Tractatus when he was somewhat young, and then he Published much later, Philosophical Investigations, which is essentially written in something like the same style, but it's a series of parables about how the struggle for objectivity is is ridiculous. It's self contradictory. Um, I just I had never really heard about these notebooks, so I haven't read them yet. But it's a perfect example of a book review that lays out with total economy and no showing off exactly why something is important and interesting and why you ought to read it. So thank you to this reviewer. And I'm going to buy that book forthwith and report back. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Dana, thanks so much.
0: It was a
2: pleasure. Yeah, as always. Um, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's Slate.com slash CultureFest. And you can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com. Our intro music is by Nicholas Patel Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. And our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you soon.